Hello, so this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. It's approximately 2.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm here with, um, and actually, I don't want to mispronounce your first name. You use the abbreviated one, right? Ndalk? Yeah. Ndalk is good, yeah. Dr. Ndalk Jala is an assistant professor of communication studies who has written on the intersection of technology, international communication, and storytelling. Um, in addition to his research about digital media, Dr. Chala is a scholar who specializes in nonprofit public relations and the way social movements framed in media. While his geographical area of expertise is the Horn of Africa with a primary focus on Ethiopia, he also looks at, weaves in, and analyzes political, technological, and economic connections, highlighting the longstanding connection of Ethiopia to other countries in Africa, as well as to the Ethiopian diaspora. Um, and and Dalk, thank you so much for joining us on the We Be Imagining podcast. Would you like to say a little bit more about who you are personally and um, your research? Uh, thank you so much, Kadija, for having me. Yes, uh, well, I you've really uh, described my profile very well. So I started uh, my writing when I was in Ethiopia in 2012 uh, as a blogger. Uh, we co-founded a blogging collective called Zone 9 Bloggers in 2012. And uh, that's the only line that I want to add on my profile. Okay, cool. Um, and before we get into the initial questions, and I was really um, drawn to your work because I just noticed so much in trying to research and better understand this political moment in Ethiopia, the role of social media, mis- and disinformation across all political spectrums. And while I find there's a lot of Ethiopians represented in kind of the tech policy space in which I'm kind of very much in the midst of professionally, I find that many of them are not speaking about what's happening in Ethiopia in particular, even while they might be talking about racial bias within uh, United States uh, academic context. Um, and so I have several questions about your, your research and your writing. But before we get into that, I also just wanted to ask if you had more that you wanted to add in terms of your relationship to uh, the Aroma protests and to the Aroma experience in general. Yes, so I was born and raised in Ethiopia from uh, an Oromo father and an Amara mom. Uh, and uh, I identify as an Ethiopian. And uh, I have a research interest uh, in Oromo politics uh, because I grew up in Ethiopia, learning about Oromo experience within Ethiopia. And uh, I, I do have my own experience. so. I have a research interest. I also want to be very transparent that I come from uh, an experience of a person who do not have a lot of discrimination because of my ethnic background. I speak both language, Amharic and Afanoma. And uh, yeah, that's very important to, to highlight. Thank you, thank you. Um... So I wanted to talk about one of your pieces, how identity-driven politics fuel Ethiopia's incendiary social media rhetoric. And you wrote this piece as part of the Identity Matrix Platform Regulation of Online Threats to Expression in Africa, funded by the African Digital Rights Initiative. Um, and given the degree to which misinformation is being disseminated across the political spectrum, 
on proprietary social media platforms that's so well explored in your piece um, and throughout so much of your work. How much can we de-escalate the current level of ethnic and ethnic tensions without the Western nation states in which companies like Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, which is also part of Facebook, um, are headquartered? You know, without without bolstering the regulatory and enforcement mechanisms that hold these companies accountable for content moderation and fact checking, you know, how how much can we really de-escalate the level of tensions that are happening right now? Hmm. It's very wide, broad question. Yes, I think the first thing is the Ethiopians themselves. So we need to sit down and have uh, a, an honest discussion and conversation about why we have such kind of ethnic tension in, in our country. What kind of rhetoric has been built in Ethiopia and what kind of grievances have been pent up in Ethiopia and how elites of different ethnic groups kind of articulate the Ethiopian uh, political problems. That is a very important question that we need to ask. So we need to sit down, Ethiopian elites should sit down and have an honest conversation about how Ethiopia uh, has been dealing with grievances and how we articulate our grievances. That is very important. So uh, without the involvement of those different platforms that you've mentioned uh, that are headquartered you know, thousands of miles away from Ethiopia, uh, we need to sit down and have a very honest discussions and conversations about our grievances. That is critical. Uh, but that's not happening right now. Uh, and people are driving, you know, grievances towards their political interests. So that is one of the major problems why we failed to have an honest discussion on what's happening and what happened in the past as well. So that is critical. Yeah, sorry if it's too broad. I mean, I guess I'm thinking that, you know, I agree with you that an honest, transparent, kind of calm discussion is required and kind of the foundation of a democratic society. And so on one hand, you have issues with uh, continuing to detain journalists and otherwise restrict free press in Ethiopia, the internet blackouts. But I mean, the, the role of Facebook, which in one of your pieces you even say, like for many people in Ethiopia, they see Facebook as the internet. Um, feel very critical. I mean, even in an American context, you know, there's been a lot of reporting recently around uh, the right-wing group QAnon, um, Andy and Joe and his uh, reporting of the Portland protests where, you know, the misinformation will get 400,000 retweets and then the correction, if it even comes, will maybe get less than a thousand. And so when so much of this conversation and interaction, particularly in COVID, right, is happening over social media, um, you know, how do we how, how do we address that? Like, what is the role of these? The role of these companies seems very critical, given, you know, how many other spaces are there for people to connect and discuss this, you know, transcontinentally? Yes. Yeah, so one of the critical issues that we need to raise is Ethiopia did not have a very well developed uh, institutions for storytelling, for journalism, and for archives. We didn't have like that kind of culture. And now this company is coming in and taking over our storytelling, our archival, and our uh, journalism institutions without even having one for this place. So the problem that you mentioned, for example, fake news or you know hate speech, have become mainstream 
initially because we didn't have a very developed fact-checking institutions. We didn't have very well-organized uh, storytelling institutions and archival institutions. Even though we do have those kind of stuff, we didn't have uh, a very organized, well-developed kind of fact-checking organizations and journalism institutions that have created a problem for us when these big companies popped up people have moved on to take them as a, a mainstream archival storytelling institutions. And we, so that is a problem. That is one critical problem that is happening and no one is talking, talking, about, it, talking about it. So that is a problem. And the second problem is that uh, these tech companies uh, are not hiring moderators that have local contextual information about Ethiopian political processes. So that's why you can see a lot of problematic contents, and to some extent, you know, hate speech, to some extent, people who blatantly call for genocide. So there are those kind of contents being broadcasted, particularly on Facebook and YouTube. So, and, and COVID misinformation and disinformation as well. So uh, that is why they should be responsible. They should be accountable for that. And these are big companies. They do have a lot of resources uh, and they should hire a lot of moderators who have a deeper critical understanding of Ethiopian political process. Otherwise, it's going to be a problem. Uh, that's why we see contents that, for example, in this in the country of in the context of the United States, contents that have uh, been flagged or deplatformed uh, will not be deplatformed had they been in any other language, like in 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 in, in Amharic, which could be in Afano Romo or in Tigrinya, because there is no uh, a moderator who works for these companies with a deeper understanding of the local political process. So they will be not removed. So that that is there should that should be the responsibility of these companies. But these companies are not being accounted. And uh, government usually take hostile measures to control this kind of uh, um, uh, contents. Sometimes they shut down the internet. Sometimes they arrest journalists. Uh, sometimes they persecute journalists uh, who have uh, violated ethical standards, not necessarily legal standards. So there are a lot of issues that these companies kind of uh, outsource their responsibility for. Ethiopian government and for people who are working voluntarily to fight misinformation and disinformation. That should be the responsibility of these corporations. And they shouldn't outsource their sole responsibility for uh, people who are volunteering because the level of misinformation and disinformation, uh, people have started to jump in to kind of you know, work their way in and help society to have a healthy amount of inf a healthy information. So that is the problem, that the critical problem that we are facing right now. Somewhat of a detour, but I'm just curious, are you familiar with the work of Sarah Roberts? She wrote a book, uh, she's based in UCLA at the Center for Internet Inquiry, and she wrote a book called um, Behind the Screen about the comp content moderation labor force. Yes, I am aware of that book. I have uh, not read that book, but the, there is a lot of... <laughs> Uh, information that comes out of that uh, book and out of that research. I have seen that, but I haven't read it. 
because she actually came on the show um, early in this first season. And one of the things that we were discussing was that due to the pandemic, while there was already all of these systemic issues with content moderation, that Facebook, Twitter, and others had decided to largely automate content moderation, which had um, kind of this asymmetric impact where a lot of marginalized people, maybe if they were declaring, say, that they were a victim of hate speech, would be flagged by the algorithm as committing hate speech and then deplatformed. Um, so a lot of these issues have become further exacerbated during COVID, where these processes that should really be like democratic processes and a public interest technology are automated. <clears throat> um, but the other thing that you kind of lightly just touched on right now is that I'm one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you point out how, you know, every people who are not on the same kind of ideological road, like somebody like Jawar Mohammed, but also somebody like Eskinder Nagar, uh, Nega, um, both have been part of perpetuating misleading information or outright disinformation on social media. Um, but at the other hand, how much of this do you feel like is intentional and cultivated by um, the government itself, even under Abiy Ahmed? How, how, how culpable do you hold the, the current prime minister for the situation? Uh, so uh, one thing that I have seen researching those pieces, when I read those pieces, that there are, of course, even government authorities, uh, the Minister for uh, Peace, uh, Mufariat Kamil, once on state media said that, you know, we know how people organize misinformation and disinformation. We know people are given content and a frame of content and a misinformation and paid for misinformation in our government within the structure of our government. So she said she was making authorities of their government across different branches of government, making responsibility, uh, taking, taking, asking them to take responsibility that misinformation and disinformation is laid by governmental authorities. And that is in public record. And that was, that's, that she was saying that on public media. So I think to some extent, the current government also is responsible for kind of misle uh, spreading misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, people, when, ha when they, have, uh, they are having a, a, a power uh, grab, kind of a power struggle, I'm sorry. So they, when they have a power struggle, they kind of take it to the uh, social media. They kind of uh, uh, lead smearing campaigns against each other by hiring uh, these bloggers in uh, trolls. So they know that that government authorities, authorities uh, in Ethiopia, doing that towards each other when they have uh, power struggle. This has been, of course, going since 2014. I have written a piece in 2017 highlighting that that government authorities hire trolls and bloggers and opinion writers online to defame uh, their opponents, opposition parties, and uh, sometimes to defame and attack their own members of their own party when they have a power struggle within their party. So this has been going on over the last five, six years. Now it became, when the government kind of opened up the political environment, it became uh, mainstream, that it became uh, everywhere, that opposition politicians also employ that so it's not only government, opposition politicians also kind of employ that 
when they have this kind of struggle. One, when they have a struggle against the government and when they have a struggle against their ideological opponents. So they, they, and of course, uh, the commercialization, uh, algorithmization of storytelling, and of course, uh, the echo chamber that you see across different linguistic communities in the country also have played a role in this. So it's a very multi-dimensional, multi-layered problem, but it's exasperated by uh, corporations outsourcing their responsibility for volunteers in this kind of uh, situation, and governments are not taking the problem seriously and trying to kind of solve this problem with you know little uh, amount of information they have. So that is the problem that I can see. And how much do you feel like this digital rights issue is something that is articulated by current um, oppositional groups on any side of the ideological spectrum? Like, do you feel like uh, even the kiddos or people that are the everyday people that are in the streets um, on one political side or the other, like how much do you think um, or how much do you perceive that people are articulating this particular phenomenon? Just because it seems to be um, while there are like long-standing historical reasons for having ethnic tensions in Ethiopia, the fact that there's all of this uh, inflamed memes that kind of frame one or the other, the savages seems to be making things much worse. So I'm just curious how much you see this as a digital rights issue being articulated by, you know, kind so, of the everyday people in Ethiopia. So, so there is also another layer to this. So, so opposition groups uh, and civil rights groups, uh, digital rights groups, they know that shutting down internet is wrong and they have to criticize the government. And of course, that should be criticized. I, I'm not in any way supporting shutting down the internet. But there are also uh, opposition groups, politicians that are trying to embed their political uh, problems into this form of articulations. That's why you see opposition groups sometimes come in alignment with civil rights groups uh, and civil rights uh, organizations trying to articulate their problem as a human rights problem, uh, as a repression problem. But when they articulate their problem in local languages, it could be in Amharic, it could be in Afano Romo, in Tigrinya, they articulate it in an extremely exclusive uh, way of uh, articulating the problem. Uh, they are articulating it as things are happening on the ground, uh, that there are people who are like grabbing our land, uh, coming into our land and taking over our land, taking over our language, taking our, our way of life and uh, trying to impose their way of life to our way of life. There is no such a thing in the country on the ground. Uh, most regions, even though they are not homogenous, but they are using their language, their culture, they can develop their way of life. There is, I don't see any kind of that kind of problem, but when they articulate it, they articulate it in that manner and they produce those memes, political memes. Uh, so they regain their, like they, they gain and rile up their base. But when they articulate the problem, the political problem, to have an ally in the Western world, in the international community, in the civil rights group, they articulate it in a civil rights manner. Uh, Ethiopian government is you know, imposing uh, shutdown, internet shutdown, 
and uh, arresting journalists. If that is true, but uh, they articulate their, that that problem in a different manner when they articulate it to different constituencies. So the international community, the corporations, the civil rights organizations, NGOs are one constituents that are being used or uh, they are uh, kind of being catered to uh, with a different language and with different articulations. That's why we do have a lot of mis- and disinformation about what's going on in the country. That's very important. Um, thank you for, for clarifying that and sharing your perspective. You know, within this context in February of this year, um, a hate speech law that was very controversial and kind of discussed globally was passed in Ethiopia that significantly limits kind of the speech that incites uh, violence or hatred on social media was then considered deemed illegal. And there was some question of um, whether this was constitutional. In particular, who gets to decide exactly what is hate speech in a, in a context that people are arguing over kind of the basic uh, concept of the Ethiopian state and whether it should be pan-federalist or what is Ethiopian history? You know, who gets to decide what is hate speech or not? Hate, hate speech or not? And so I was wondering if you could kind of just share what your thoughts are on that law that passed in February of this year and kind of what do you feel like has been the impact or not? I, I think that law has a lot of problems. Uh, and as I say, the government doesn't have a lot of infrastructure to monitor and police speakers online. Uh, you know, after even after that that law has passed, you can see there are a lot of problematic contents that the government haven't uh, made people who have posted those responsible. And there is always a risk of politicizing laws in the country. They, we have an experience of anti-terrorism law where, of course, there is a threat of terrorism in the country, but the government kind of use those uh, threats to legitimize their power and uh, use that law to prosecute legitimate opposition groups and label them as terrorists. And that tradition is very strong in the country. And, of course, the same being said for uh, anti-hate speech law, I can say that there are people who can, who are willing to use that speech, anti-hate speech law, to uh, persecute their, you know, opponents, their political opponents. But that doesn't mean that there are no law, there are no problematic speeches in the insightful speeches, uh, inflammatory, incendiary uh, speeches. There are a lot of them. My example, I can, you know, they are in public record. They're available, I can cite like countless videos of those kind of, but those are not prosecuted. They're, those are not like, and as, as I said, uh, there are a lot of people producing this, generating these contents every day. And it's very hard for the government to prosecute uh, people who post it. Because one thing there is, a lot of them are, are, are anonymous. Uh, some of them live outside Ethiopia. Most of them, particularly the diaspora. Uh, you know, there are live videos, uh, YouTube channels that are broadcasting like, those problems that could be defined as a hate speech in uh, the context of Ethiopian uh, law that I have passed. So there are a lot of things that law doesn't have a capacity to solve. So that is a problem. It's just, uh, for me, the passing of that law is just a public relation exercise 
trying to say that, okay, we're trying to solve this kind of problem, but that kind of problem will not be solved through uh, bypassing uh, a hate speech law. That It's very simplistic. Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not well researched. Uh, stakeholders should be consulted. And of course, capacity has to be built on the government side to make especially corporations responsible who uh, are not monitoring those contents. Of course, you also mentioned um, uh, who is defining what, pro what contents is, what content is head speech. So that is very important. We need to define uh, what content is head speech in the context of Ethiopia, what words are inflammatory in the context of Ethiopia. One particular uh, case that I have recently seen is a discussion of, on the word called neftanya. So uh, there are people who argue that the word neftanya is not inflammatory, is not hate speech. So we shouldn't police it, it should be available, and we should be okay to use it. And there are groups who define neftanya, of course, the direct translation of neftanya is a rifleman. But there are also people who argue that the word neftenya is a dog whistle reference to Amhara people. So when regular people, everyday people use the word neftenya, they are not saying a system. They are not referring to a system that was dismantled in 1974 when uh, Haile Selassie was removed from power. They are referring to everyday people, their neighbors, uh, Amharas. Uh, or people who do not subscribe to a certain uh, kind of ideology. So you can see the argument, and I can make an argument if you ask me that the word neftenya should be considered as inflammatory, given in the context how people, everyday people, use it uh, on their daily conversation. They are trying to refer to a certain group of people. They're not referring to a system that was dismantled in 1974. So it's very important, and this head speech law doesn't deal with this kind of problem. That's why, in that sense, it is simplistic. We need to have a broader uh, law that deals with this kind of problem, and that is, that's why I was very critical of that uh, law. Thank you. Um, I wanted I wanted to kind of discuss with you the the role of the diaspora, but just pausing for a moment on this word neftenya. And so, as I mentioned to you, as part of my personal background is that, you know, I'm diaspora, my father is a Romo, my mother is a white American, I grew up here. Um, and a very important thing about my perspective is that I just happen to be a monolingual English speaker. Um, so in order to understand these terms, you know, I'm somewhat dealing with the, the act of, of translation, and there will always be a degree to which I might not fully understand. Um, and I'm just curious, like, I hear that Neftenya, um, I don't even know if I would use the word dog whistle in the sense that it's kind of explicit that it refers to Amhara people. At the same time, there seems to be, while the, uh, racial politics in America is very uh, distinct from Ethiopia, and I don't want to like flatten out those parallels, there does seem to be some similarity of like conversations here around white fragility or white supremacy um, and around the impact, the ongoing impact of slavery and you know, some white people will say, like, look, I didn't, my family did not own slaves. You know, why should I personally be responsible for this? You know, I, I don't represent the actions of historical racism in this country. 
you know, even if Neftenya is being deployed in ways that are uh, wrong or causing harm, ultimately isn't the idea of highlighting um, kind of this uh, great or uh, monarch uh, history of Ethiopia, isn't it something that excludes other people? Isn't this word kind of trying to get at a history that maybe wasn't explicitly taught in Ethiopian public schools? Uh, I, I think I contest that perception. And it, the history of Ethiopian state is very complicated and complex, and it's totally wrong to kind of draw parallel with what's going on in this country or what has been going on in this country. And I have seen a lot of academics, particularly Oromo academics, who are trying to draw parallel between uh, the Ethiopian uh, experience of state building and the Jim Crow or the slavery in the United States. It's completely wrong and completely different perspectives. So that has to be laid out. And there are a lot of academics who have done really awesome job in trying to uh, distinguish these two processes. And of course, it's easy, it's easy to use those tropes to highlight the injustices that happen in Ethiopia. But it is on my perspective, I think it's very wrong at this contextualizing the experience of the Oromo people as well. So, but, and of course, we should highlight that there are different Oromos who have different perspective on this as well. There are Oromo scholars who have said that Ethiopian Oromos have played a, you know, an integral process of building that state, even though that state, the, even the, including the monarch state, including uh, the state that uh, had happened after, uh, like the government that have come after uh, the dismantling of the monarch, which is in 1974. So it's very important to highlight that. Uh, for, I can I can cite examples. For example, Marara Gudina do not subscribe to that ideology. Marara is one of the leader and a scholar, uh, an Oromo scholar, uh, who happened to be the leader of one of the key opposition groups in Ethiopia. So we need to highlight that. We need to give a context in which this is happening. And the word Neftanya, uh, of course, there was injustice until 1974, even though that injustice also should not be compared with what happened in the United States. Uh, it's good to discuss about it. We discuss, uh, you know, make historical claims about that. that is, there is no question about it. But making comparison is one thing kind of uh, muddled a lot of Ethiopian problem. It exasperates the problem that we have. And we don't have a lot of contextual, um, um, kind of very lot of contextual information if you use those tropes to uh, highlight uh, the, Ethiopia's, the current Ethiopian's problem. Uh, having said that, I want to say that the word Neftanya is inflammatory uh, with the current context. In the past usage and the current usage is completely different. Uh, in the past, of course, maybe it may refer to a system, a monarchical system, but there are different vocabularies that we need to use to describe the, those monarchical systems, those injustices. We have a lot of vocabulary, a lot of words to describe. Why do we insist on using a word that creates a lot of problem for a lot of pro a lot of people. So there are people who are literally calling for 
uh, for for de- for killing Naftangas. When they say that, they're usually referring to a people. You can't say, for example, we can you, you you can talk about white fragility here, but you can't say that we should discriminate against whites or you should uh, uh, eliminate whites. You, that is absolutely unacceptable and abhorrent way of trying to make justice. So that people are talking, deploying the word neftanya in that context, which means we need to discriminate against neftanyas, we need to uh, kill them, we should start from our neighbors. These are the contents that are like, available on YouTube. I can, you know, I, can, I can give you hours of videos that people claiming we should kill neftanyas. What are, what are they trying to see? Should, are they saying that we should kill that system? No, it's not. They're referring to a people. So I think there are uh, words to refer to those unjust systems. Naftanya should not be the one. What words do you recommend? I mean, because part of, part of recommending a different vocabulary choice is like perhaps offering a different theoretical framing or not even theoretical, a different political framing. So what do you think are are better words or lenses that can kind of capture that there are legitimate um, historical grievances that the Aromos or Eros are bringing up, but um, that doesn't legitimize harm or, you know, systematic killings of people who deviate from what they consider to be rights. So um, it, it's very hard for me to recommend that word uh, out of like right now, but there are like words that we can describe the system uh, that had happened uh, pre-1974. So the, the system had, of course, were like over in 1974 when the Derg regime came to power, uh, when the monarch was done. So monarchical systems, a monarchical, where this, that this could describe the monarchical government system are uh, a lot. So it's very difficult. It's very easy to find those kind of words. I would say we should recommend those kind of words and we shouldn't insist on using Naftanya. Uh, because uh, it's bringing damage, and it's it's as you said. Sometimes it's not even a, good, a dog whistle. I have seen people using it um, at the same time, like by saying "neftenyas are amharas" or "neftenyas are people who subscribe to their ideology," or "neftenyas are people who do not subscribe to our way of life or our way of culture," or who uh, happen to be the supporter of the current government. So some certain, in a certain context, these are the neftanyas. So we need to minimize that harm. We should deploy a different word. Why don't we use someone who supports, um, uh, you know, discrimination? So if someone, you know, so it's very, it's very hard to kind of uh, suggest words. I need to make my own research, but I don't think neftanya should be the one that we should use. Because it's bringing a lot of damage. Fair, fair, fair. <clears throat> so I want to return to to this to this uh, linguistic conversation, but maybe a way to explore how you said that there is not this easy parallel between um, American racial politics in Ethiopia. I just wanted to re- think about think through out loud with you the role of the diaspora in this moment. For me, I'm 32 years old and growing up here, I feel like. Uh, for first-generation Ethiopians, this is the first time I feel like such a significant um, groundswell of people in the streets and identifying with what's happening back home that were born here explicitly and not just um, 
perhaps our parents' age and seeking seeking asylum or seeking uh, refugee status here, but actually we're raised here and kind of through the experience of hearing their their parents' stories are becoming politicized around the situation in Ethiopia. And I thought an interesting entry point into that conversation would be the video that was taken in, in Seattle in, uh, in July. And so this video is very fascinating to me because it embodies many of the contradictions um, in terms of first-generation diaspora's relationship to the aroma protest. It circulated heavily among self-identified Kero supporters, as well as those who deem Kero to be Muslim extremists, terrorists, or promoting genocide. Um, the particular incident it highlights for people who feel that uh, the Roma protests are you know, Muslim extremists or terrorists is that they'll say, okay, this is a video of somebody violently beating a young white boy, somebody who looks like in their teens or early 20s, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, you know, Looking at the video, it shows a woman with an Obama Hope shirt waving her Ethiopian flag in the middle of a small gathering of other people with the Aromo flag masks and shirts on. Um, a second woman is uh, that seems to be allied with the woman waving the Ethiopian flag is screaming at them, this is America, bitch. She has the right to be here. The woman waving the flag throws her shoe at the woman on the Aromo side. And then the video, it's, it's unclear what happened. There's all these different stories, but it does show the white guy kind of turning towards the Aromo side of the protest. Um, and some are claiming that he was just walking by and wantonly attacked. Others are saying that there was some kind of dirty needle that he was trying to inject into them. Another says that he was just touching them, that he was paid by um, so-called neftenyas to attack them. Um, and some of the other people are saying that he was just a friend. The truth seems very murky, but this kind of highlights uh, kind of a, a layer of contradictions in terms of the diaspora involvement, because... One of the things that from that I experienced in my kind of personal life growing up is a lot of anti-blackness within the Ethiopian community. So if somebody wants to get um, cornrows, even though this is a rich, you know, historically from Ethiopia, people will say like Dorie or bad boy um, and just anything that kind of too identifies with black American aesthetic. People are very uh, shunned away from doing those kind of things. And so I think about I look at these kids and I'm thinking, you know, Seattle, Minnesota, Portland. These are places that are. Um, you know, have a huge history of white supremacy um, and a very strong kind of like white nationalist history. Um, and then they're having like anti-blackness coming from their family. Then they're getting politicized through Black Lives Matter and then getting involved with Aroma protests, which they, you know, largely are knowing from, from stories, not their immediate experience. You know, these don't seem to be kids who grew up in Ethiopia and are becoming active based on what something that happened to them. Um, but as far as like how they're understanding from afar what's happening in the situation. So to me, this kind of concentrates all these like layers and contradictions. And, and I just wonder how much, you know, their involvement is more about a kind of a feeling of alienation where the, the, the scope of Black Lives Matter maybe doesn't capture, you know, their experience as first generation um, in these like very, very white and cold places. Um, and how much they understand what's going on. Um, but I was just hoping if you could kind of speak to the role of diaspora, both on social media and kind of what are the limitations, given all this disinformation we discussed, and people who are not in Ethiopia presently uh, to understand what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, you really, it's fascinating you uh, described this situation in the, that video phenomenon really well. And it speaks a lot. So one thing that I want to say is that like the diaspora, the second generation and the first generation diaspora, are trying to kind of build an alliance 
uh, and kind of articulate the current Ethiopian political conundrum in the frame of uh, Black Lives Matter. That is a problem. You can see a lot of like Oromo Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, and we are an ally and we are discriminated. And you can see also a competition to co-opt that movement, like the Black Lives Matter movement. And I have seen people drawing parallels uh, with, for example, uh, the killing of Hajalu with the killing of uh, uh, George Floyd. And I have seen a lot of uh, diaspora community trying to articulate the political problem so that people here in this country will understand the Ethiopian problem and the Ethiopian ethnic problem. And they're trying to use and deploy that frame uh, to help and highlight, of course, also to gain an alliance uh, and, uh, and defeat what they think it should be defeated in Ethiopia. So one of the major problems is this one. And the second one, I think, is uh, that that video particularly kind of highlights uh, the problem uh, of information in that country. People decontextualize a lot of problem in the country, in, the, in, our, in our country, and they bring it here. And there is also a long history of trying to bring regime change by help, you know, by uh, getting together in the United States and marching in the streets and asking their representatives and put on asking their representatives to put pressure on uh, diplomatic pressure on Ethiopia. And there is also a, this a discussion of AIDS uh, in you know giving money to Ethiopia, and we should be making the Ethiopian government responsible for that. So there is also another layer for this. So the, they have seen that when regime change came in Ethiopia in 1991, uh, they think that America had played a major role in bringing that change. And uh, after that, there is also uh, a perception that America had played a role, a key role in bringing regime change in Ethiopia. So that is also kind of, you can see that. And uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, it's not particular to Ethiopian diaspora, but it is a very diasporic characteristic that there is an element of recklessness and irresponsibility that uh, the diaspora, uh, whether it is uh, Ethiopian diaspora or the Oromo diaspora, uh, or the, the first generation or second generation diaspora, who are trying to bring a regime change in Ethiopia. So they, there is a, a form, a, 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 a way that makes them similar with other diaspora members uh, in the United States. That they, you know, you don't take responsibility. Recklessly, you can uh, misinform people, disinform people, uh, want to make a regime change in the country, and because you're not directly responsible. And there is a scholar who described this kind of phenomenon and this kind of people as long-distance nationalists. Uh, long-distance nationalists are reckless. Long-distance nationalists are irresponsible. And they are not directly responsible. They don't have any legal accountability. They can say whatever they want, and they can tell, they can spin the story the way they want. So that is a problem. And you can see the diaspora media exhibiting that kind of elements and that kind of characteristics as well. So that thing could be articulated and could be described in this manner. So, and of course, there is a fight uh, between two groups in the diaspora. 
And there is another frame that uh, a scholar have uh, described that this is a kind of imported uh, conflict. So there was a brewing conflict in Ethiopia, a political conflict that happened to be uh, in 1974. Uh, then these are conflict-generated diaspora. That conflict-generated diaspora kind of bring that conflict to a host country and kind of perpetuate that to the second and the first generation. So that's why, even though these kids do not have a direct discrimination experience in their country, uh, they kind of have strong alliances, strong emotional attachment to their parents. And they, some of them even don't speak the language, but they kind of are, have a very strong feeling, uh, a, a attachment to their ethnic identity. And that's why you see a lot of uh, young people coming and protesting on the street. Here in Minnesota, they have... Uh, uh, been protesting since the killing of Haj Al Undresa uh, over the last like four or five weeks. So it's continuous and they are articulating the problem and they're trying to co opt the Black Lives Matter movement to uh, Oromo Lives Matter movement and try to gain an alliance. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a w kind of trying to uh, market their, their political problem in that country. So it's it's not particular to that uh, Oromo diaspora, but it is a very common diasporic uh, characteristic. I mean, I just feel like it's complicated. I don't necessarily agree um, with the, I mean, first of all, I don't live in Minnesota, so I feel like it's very different. While I grew up in a, in a, in a Muslim Oromo community in New York, I mean, I think that New York is just, you have a, a level of access to racial diversity that is that is problematic, but very different than I imagine Minnesota to be. I mean, I think, you know, Mananjira means like what existence is mine, right? And I, I can see a lot of first generation people having, identifying with that sentiment of alienation um, in, in an American context where, you know, black people are often seen to be subhuman. And then the articulation of Black Lives Matter is not, it's not really international. I don't think that we're at a point now where people are making also it's kind of a decentralized movement so sometimes you'll see some kind of like the organized left come in with free palestine signs but i'm not sure even if people really understand you know what is the connection between what's happening in palestine and what does it have to do with ferguson or george floyd etc um but i think that people identify with that alienation um but then i'm not sure if they understand the political situation in ethiopia but the other reason i bring up that video is that I'm not justifying that they hit that guy, but part of what happened is that they were being labeled as extremists, and in reality, they were also being like, the woman threw a shoe at them. They, it, it was initiated by the other people. Mm. Um, it then went viral on both sides. Like, both sides said, uh, you know, people who identify as Amharos and say they're extremists were like, here, look, here's evidence of these people are savages and they're bringing this shit mm. to America. And then the other side is like, look, they're antagonizing us, you know, which is kind of true. There was like a dozen of them. And then these two people come waving a flag, cursing at them in their face. Um, and then the role of the white guy is unclear, but it seems it seems like he was not just walking by. Uh, other than that, I don't have enough evidence to know. Um, yeah. But everything I'm, is a little I'm, more I'm, murky I'm, than it's reported. Yeah. yeah, but I'm not saying that they don't have an experience of animation and discrimination in this country. But uh, there is a way of articulating Ethiopian local politics. So they are out on the street to make a voice for people who they describe as voiceless in their country. So, but they are trying to articulate it in 
uh, a Black Lives frame, Black Lives Matter frame, because because you can. So they said discrimination uh, here is discrimination the same with discrimination in our country, uh, which is problematic for me. So you can articulate the Ethiopian problem, but you can't articulate it in a manner where Black Lives Matter is being articulated in this country. And I have seen a lot of them kind of use diplo terms, for example, institutional racism. Uh, institutional racism in Ethiopia, I, I don't think there is an institutionalized racism in Ethiopia. Yes, there is in this country, uh, and, but when you articulate the Ethiopian racism, the Ethiopian uh, institutional problem, you can't use that kind of articulation because it is completely different, different context, uh, in different way of uh, life in our country. And we don't have to uh, deploy the race relation frame in the United States to our ethnic relation in our country. That is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I have, I have mixed feelings. I mean, maybe also it's because race, race and ethnicity are more distinct maybe in Ethiopia than America. I mean, I definitely think there's like colorism in Ethiopia for sure. Um, yes, I see that. Yes, colorism across different ethnic groups. Colorism is not only in Amhara or Romo or Tigrayans. The colorism across the board, across different ethnic groups, uh, there I have seen there are discrimination. Even within a family context, there is a preference to light-colored people in our country. That that But that is not particular to one ethnic group. You can't put that into a single ethnic group. It is a problem throughout the country through across different ethnic groups. That is very important to highlight. And that's why when you deploy race relation in this country, uh, the frame of race relation in this country to understand political problem in our country, you will miss a lot of nuances and exasperate the existing problem. And that is my problem. That's why we need to have uh, a different framework and understanding to understand the Ethiopian political problem. Understood. Um, maybe we can use that as a departure point to think about the role of disinformation um, around this claim of genocide. Because another place that this led me, you know, let's be honest with you, a lot of the people that I have interviewed, I think, are fairly representative of the, the of self-identified Kero cause. Most of them have not been overwhelmingly are not are not so critical. Um, and at the same time, I've taken very seriously this allegation of genocide and ethnic cleansing, and I just find it very difficult to get a clear understanding of what's going on because of the level of disinformation. And so I wanted to give you one example is that, I don't know if you read this, but Germa Berhanu had a Burkina report, Ethiopia continues to deny genocide in the Aroma region, but pictures and testimonies tell a different story. Have you read that? I think I have seen that, yes. So it's like a 14-page report, and many of the things that he cites in this report are in the various blogs and, and even things that are cited in kind of the Washington Post and New York Times kind of all circle back to the same citations. But I think it, it, it's an example of why it becomes very hard to understand what's going on. And so he opens by saying, reports estimate that as many as 50,000 people have been displaced by ethno-nationalist mobs and hundreds killed. This is not the first time similar atrocities committed against in particular, non-Aromos, Orthodox Christians, and a number of minority groups. And the evidence that he cites for atrocities uh, against non-Aromos, that first footnote, is, uh, is the October 23rd, 2019, 
um, the Al Jazeera story about when Jarwar stated on social media that his security detail was being removed in the middle of the night. And so they said, you know, all these people were murdered and that he was inciting violence. But for example, like in this very particular example, the Human Rights Report, the Human Rights Watch Report, tells like a very complex story. Like, for example, in Ambo, a witness states that things largely degenerated after an eighth grader was shot by the police. Um, however, and I'm probably mispronouncing the name of this town, but it's uh, Dodola, it appears more likely that there was some kind of intercommunal, intercommunal targeted violence against uh, Amharas and other ethnic groups, albeit they couldn't verify these claims. Um, but there is a huge percentage of things that are being pinned on Jarwar, who legitimately, I don't, uh, you know, I think there are critiques to be made and, and, you know, has said things that are wrong. But at closer look, there's also this huge role of the, the Ethiopian police force and security forces also murdering and um, committing crimes against people. So it often makes it very difficult to understand what's going on because what is stated as so black and white in this particular report about genocide, you know, citing evidence that is not so clear and not so black and white. And so... I was just hoping that you could speak to, I know you found a lot of evidence to support ethnic cleansing, and I definitely want to hear about that, but also how do we have a principled discussion about this when, even if, to me, even if this is legitimate and we know 100% there's genocide, if you're citing evidence that then doesn't support your case, it kind of delegitimizes it to me. So I, I have a very hard time kind of figuring out how to, to parse these things. And, you know, legitimately, I'm also not there. I, I'm, this is third hand. I'm, I'm, I am the uh, nationalists at a distance, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from far away. So any of your insight there would be, be helpful. Yes, I think uh, that is great. Thank you so much. So I, I think that, you know, the problem is, as I told you, that people are trying to uh, make an ally in, in an international community because it's a very important, it's very important uh, constituent in making claims and establishing your power. So uh, both sides of course, have that element. There is no question about it. I won't uh, deny. But of course, those claims, those claims that say that there was ethnic cleansing targeted at, you know, killing in, uh, especially after the killing of Hajal Undesa had happened in Oromia. That is true. It's not my report. BBC Amharic had reported. VOA Amharic had reported. Deutsche Welle reported it in detailed manner. Uh, people have verified, and of course, after that, people have, you know, tried to protect, of course, the name of the region or the name of the community, and you know, people, there is a tendency to make a stereotype conclusion that uh, this happened because of this and this. I understand that, but the truth is those killings have happened. It is true. And... Uh, and, and of course, I have also relatives who are living in that area that I have called and verified there was an ethnic tension and people were scared. People were afraid of even articulating their grievances in different parts of the, the country uh, for fear of being discriminated or for fear of violence. That is true. Uh, there, uh, there is a lot of uh, rabid nationalists who are trying to uh, kind of, oh, th th that doesn't happen. If that happened, uh, it happened like it's intercommunal violence uh, or uh, it's the usual uh, talking points of the Habeshas or the, you know, the people who have oromophobia, uh, quote unquote, uh, that trying to 
give us names and stuff like that. I'm not saying that there are no people who don't have that kind of problem. I'm not denying that. There are a lot of people who have a lot of problem with like Oromo, but this thing happened. It's true. Um, I have verified. Uh, so that is my, my, my conclusion. But we shouldn't, like, for fear of uh, being labeled as a genocider or as a people who are violent, we shouldn't kind of, uh, uh, di- we shouldn't uh, minimize the 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 harm that happened it's it, it, for you know for justice shouldn't be realized by minimizing or by denying what happened it happened it's a problem and when you say verified could you go into some more detail because and again you know i i do accept that you know my ability to verify this is limited by the fact that i am a monolingual english speaker um, but going through some of the links in your article and other things that people cite, often it's someone like, for example, the the Orthodox Church saying that there was violence against Christians, but they themselves did not. There, there is unclear. Like, did they even get a first person report? Like, they're not necessarily citing evidence. You know, how widespread do you think this is? Just because genocide is specific, it's not just like an excess of you know. Uh, even in America, things get burnt on fire. I mean, there's violence as the language of the unheard. But genocide is pretty a specific, deep claim. Yeah, I, I'm not like maybe genocide uh, is like it should to be labeled uh, a violence as a genocide. It should happen over a certain period of time. I don't know about that, but I don't have a specific understanding of the definition of genocide. But I can say that there were targeted violence. Minorities were targeted. You could dis- you can define it as genocide or ethnic cleansing, but that happened. How did I verify? For example, uh, Card is uh, an NGO which is working in Addis. And, uh, they have traveled. They have sent researchers uh, immediately after this violence happened and instability came, and they interviewed people. They have seen people uh, displaced. Uh, they have interviewed people who had passed through violence and mobs. Uh, young people came to their home and burned their property and uh, asking them. And of course, they were going house to house and trying to check their identity, their ethnic identity, uh, and their religious identity. And people, they have testified. A lot of people have been talking about it. And I think that all these are on public record. And that's why I say, and I have also called verified from a family member who lived there, who is an Oromo, uh, who said that, yes, that happened and that shouldn't happen. And I think we shouldn't kind of meddle it. We should, we, should be, we should be conscious enough to say this is wrong and this is wrong. And I have, of course, as I said, hours of videos that were broadcasted on different media organizations that are based in the uh, United States. Uh, from diaspora uh, and recklessly calling for people, starting from their neighbor. I can call it because I am a native speaker of the language. I can say that people were saying, you can, you should start from your neighbor. You shouldn't go and fight and look for someone who have killed Hajjalu. They already have decided uh, who have killed Hajjalu. So, uh, and they say, okay, so you should start from your neighbor. I can tell you, I have you know, va- you know, hours of videos of that. I have archived it and should should if should be 
uh, I can make it available. And should should people should be responsible for that? Those people who have said that should make should be accountable, should be responsible. Uh, it, I, but I'm not saying that their uh, speech might have caused the violence in the country. That is very difficult to prove scientifically uh, because you know correlation or causation is very difficult to prove. But within certain period of time, after those speeches were made, those violence happened. There is maybe another uh, factors that local authorities may have contributed to this, or you know there are other variables we should consider. But those speech happened, and those uh, targeted killings had happened. So it is, as I told you, scientifically, it is very difficult to prove causation and correlation. But those speech happened; they are on the public record. I have the I have the archive of those speech. And but can you just clarify when you're saying the archival record? How 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 much of this is people in the diaspora calling for it? So, for example, a two-hour uh, a two-hour broadcast of uh, I have seen like about ten people making that claim. In the uh, so that is problematic. I have also embedded two videos, just sample videos on this, and one of this on one of the speech. One of the lady who was talking was trying to make sure that this is broadcasted and people are listening back home and she is encouraging them to take measures. That this is, is a woman in Minnesota, right? Yes. But that's that, what I'm curious. How many of this is coming from people in the diaspora who maybe are not politically affiliated versus like explicitly, you know, Jawar Muhammad or other people that identify as leaders of the movement saying it? Um, no, I, I haven't seen of those leaders claiming that, but people who are members of the diaspora are making that claim. Uh, I'm not saying that the leaders have said, I haven't seen those leaders claiming that, killing, but, you know, they are using those uh, problem problematic terms, but they have never claimed that go out and kill. In fact, some of them say that we should be very careful. We shouldn't be... Uh, uh, targeting minorities who are living in our uh, country. So there were people who were saying that. But the thing is, they will not say this is wrong. The thing is, they will not say, they didn't apologize. They just took down after I have tweeted and after one of my friends tweeted and asked them to remove it. They, of course, they removed, the videos were removed. And I have a record of that. Uh, but they haven't apologized. They haven't taken the responsibility. And that is wrong. I'm just curious how much of this phenomenon of calling for explicitly calling for genocide is something that has been fostered and evolved in the diaspora versus back home. Like, do you feel like the things that are being said, say, by that woman in Minnesota would not be said in Ethiopia? Or do you feel like that's represented? I don't think, I don't think that in Ethiopia, I don't think that was very a common phenomenon. Um, and, and, you know, I'm removed from Ethiopia. I don't have the local information uh, pre, uh, uh, pre the assassination of Hajar Mundesa. You should go and look, like, we should have a local context and how people were, you know. But I've heard uh, it was mostly peaceful, uh, but immediately after the assassination, all the violence and mayhem 
happened. And we need to have a, a, a broader understanding of what happened pre-assassination and after assassination. I mean, what do you think? Because you, 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 in fact, live in Minnesota. Um, and so in this context, like you said, you know, to even say kill the whites or something would be a very big deal. So even if it's not happening in English for somebody who is in America to explicitly call for the, the extermination of another ethnic group is, is a really big deal. And so what do you think kind of accounts for this uh, type of like extreme politicization, you know, in, in, in America of Ethiopians that are staying here? The, th- the first thing is without any investigation, they came out and say, okay, Hajalo was killed by Neftalias. Even though, even though he was killed by the, you know, uh, people who are Neno Romo, you shouldn't say that, because an innocent person who lives in uh, in Romia shouldn't make be shouldn't be responsible for what one an one idiot has done. So, the rhetoric had contributed. The rhetoric had contributed that we should start looking for like uh, a person. We shouldn't even. They shouldn't. They were not even willing to listen to uh, identify the killer. They already have decided the killer. They already have said that he was killed. In fact, he was killed because he he said some uh, unfavorable words about uh, the monarch called Menelik. He said about the... But, you know, he was not the only... He was not the first one to, to, to say that. There are even singers, other singers who have uh, produced a song insulting Menelik, uh, prominent singers. Uh, their, sing- their songs are available on YouTube. No one, has t- no one has touched them. At least you should be willing to listen to the evidence, where the evidence will lead you, before you jump into conclusion, okay, he was killed by someone who might be Naftanya, and we should target all the Naftanyas. So those rhetoric had contributed. Those rhetorics that Essentializing identity also had contributed, and that is dangerous. We shouldn't essentialize identity. My that's my ideological. <laughs> sure, I'm just yeah. saying. Like I under, I don't agree, obviously, but I understand. I kind of get the context in which people are attracted to conspiracy theories. Um, you know, it, it, once you once you adhere to a conspiracy theory, you don't have to do all this like complex structural analysis. It's more just kind of following this chain of information and the self-reinforcing. I understand the limitations of identity politics, but that's a big leap to genocide, right? Like, so why? What, I'm just trying to understand, like, you know, whatever the limitations of what I understand in Ethiopia, I do understand America. It's kind of shocking to me to hear people who are, whether they're citizens or not, people who are here in America who feel comfortable and confident demanding the extermination. Um, and while I agree with you, like we should get firsthand uh, opinion of what is happening in Ethiopia. What do you think accounts for, like you living here, what do you think has radicalized this section of the American Ethiopian population to a degree in which, even if they're buying into conspiracy theories, you know, like there's people out here still believing 9-11 is an inside job, blah, 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 but are going to like openly call for for systematic extermination of another ethnic group. I mean, that's just an extreme leap. Yeah, it is. I I mean, I would say there are many variables that we should consider. Uh, The first thing is, as I said, uh, articulating the problem of Ethiopia, the political, economic, and social articulation 
a cultural articulation, a kind of pent-up uh, grievance as well. Uh, there is also a form of culture war, uh, in if I use an American word for describing what culture should we have and what culture should we make a ministry. Uh, should we have, uh, what kind of government system should Ethiopia have? So the discussions uh, are not healthy. The discussions are uh, essentially kind of essentializing identity. So we, we don't have that level of comfort uh, of talking, for example, a grievance about culture and kind of label each other and discriminate against each other. And that have been built over the last 13, 25 years. And that is kind of essentialized. And as I, you say that when parent, our parent, I'm of course a first generation diaspora, which means that I came here after I was born and grew up in America. But, you know, kind of give that sense of uh, discrimination and repression for your children. And those children kind of grew up with hating uh, the country and they kind of make the problem for Ethiopia or for the, their problem for uh, their parents are solely Ethiopia and Ethiopia only. That also kind of uh, had, a, 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 I think, a hand on it. So there are many variables. It's not only seeing, I can't pinpoint and pin it to a single variable, but uh, mainly the rhetoric, uh, the essentializing uh, tendencies uh, of identities have played a role in radicalizing a certain section of Ethiopian diaspora. So we're past an hour. I just want to, I have just two last questions. I'll ask them both to you and you can answer in whatever order, just because, you know, it's a lot of time. Um, one is just that I, I had interviewed another person who was explaining to me that Jawar Muhammad had translated um, Martin Luther, some of Martin Luther King's work, including the I Have a Dream speech into um, into Afana Romo in, in, in kind of trying to point to evidence towards him um, believing in nonviolent protests and, uh, you know, kind of demanding of his followers uh, a nonviolent angle. And so I'm just wondering what you thought about that in relationship to this, uh, on the flip side, the ethnic killings and tensions that we're seeing now. Um, and then my second question was just since you had brought up CARD, um, a lot of people were very upset about them equating the word Neftenya, because they did a diagram charting on Twitter how many times was the word Neftenya mentioned and how many times was the word Galla mentioned over the last, I want to say, four or five months. And some people felt like, why why are you equating these two terms? So those are my two questions, just on the nonviolence of, of Jarwar, do you feel like that's legitimate and how do you make sense of that? And two, um, kind of the the your perspective on card diagramming and kind of putting on a, the same level, uh, Gala and Eftenia. Hmm. Yes. Uh, so the first, I haven't come across with a translation that Jawar made of Martin Luther King's uh, uh, I Have a Dream speech. I am a final almost speaker. I haven't come across. He might have, he might have translated it. Uh, but I have heard that Bakala Garba, uh, who is his colleague, uh, have translated it. Uh, but I haven't seen Jawar's translation of that speech. Uh, yes, Jawar, uh, originally when he started, he began his political career uh, by criticizing Oromo Liberation Front. In 2009, I remember, he wrote an article uh, criticizing, uh, putting them 
down uh, and coming very hard on them on Oromo Liberation Front. He had been in a political struggle for a half a century at least, and they haven't brought any result for the people. So we should move on. And he became prominent immediately, and he had good relationship with the so-called unitarist or Ethiopian camp, or the Amhara camp, as some almost try to pin, uh, frame them. So he came out like that, and he began his career. But I don't think that characterization of non-violent struggle for him, I, I can give you a lot of speech that he, he has made uh, over his career that could not be described as uh, for his, uh, uh, an non-violent. And his uh, articulations, his Facebook posters are not that non-violent. For example, I can give you one example. Uh, I think it's, it, it's, it's uh, a while ago when he made a speech on Muslims' movement. Muslims' movement in Ethiopia was quite non-violent, very uh, peaceful. And he was gather. He was making a speech for for uh, Ethiopian Muslims in Seattle in 2013. Uh, he said that in 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 our country, in my local area, 99.9 percent of the population are Muslims. If there is someone who dare to uh, speak up, we will cut his uh, neck off. Uh, and uh, that. That doesn't. That is not a mark of non-violence. And uh, during the non, uh, Oromo protest, in the first phase of Oromo protest, uh, he was trying to encourage people not to attack minorities. He was saying, "No, we shouldn't. That should be given. That should be given, granted for him." But there were also instances where he said that, "Go out and put a lot of stones. Show them who you are." Like, you know, it's not, it's not non-violent. Uh, I can also tell you a lot of other, uh, after he uh, gave back to Ethiopia, he was like, uh, there are like uh, speeches that he has made um, that could be considered not non-violent. For example, in uh, one instance, there were uh, condominiums that were built by people who have contributed for that, uh, like, financially for the building of that condominium. Those condominiums had happened to be built on the land of the Oromos, which is true. And when he made the speech of that site, on that specific site, he said that uh, he, he said that he, no one is going to be allowed to, uh, to, 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 to be given this house or this condominium. So that's not non-violent. I, I can tell you like there are thousands of violent uh, speeches that he has made. And there are also the non-violent messages that he is trying to uh, transmit to his followers. He himself said that I, I I am the only one who knows how to manage nationalism. So I I, I have I am the expert. Uh, nationalism should be managed. All those kind of so I I, do, I can't describe him as a Martin Luther King kind of uh, non-violent struggle. No, that is I would say no uh, for that. So the second question. Uh, the term Gala and Nefetanya, yes, uh, they shouldn't be equated, I believe. Uh, the word Gala is dehumanizing, uh, shouldn't be uh, equated. But Card is only trying to do by comparing those two words. They're not comparing 
their usage, their lexicon, and their social impact. No, they are trying to analyze what words are being used in social media, particularly on Facebook. And they have analyzed, and they have the still track, uh, uh, crowd tangle. It's a crowd, crowd tangle is uh, a platform that uses analyzed social media. So they have analyzed those words and they have put together when, when there is a violence or pre or post violence, the word this use, uh, this, the, these two words uh, are used and there is a spike in their usage on social media platforms. They are not comparing them. They are not uh, saying that these two you are like uh, 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 congruent. No, they're not using that though. Uh, but I so I, I'll tell you that these two terms should not be equated uh, socially. Uh, they are not uh, similar in their usage, uh, and I don't think card also are uh, kind of equating the usage of those two words. Okay, that's it for all of my questions. Um, thank you. This is this was uh, usually it only takes about an hour, but um, you had a lot of good information. Um, before I hit stop, though, I just wanted to make sure, is there anything else that you would like to add that you feel like it's important for people to know that we haven't covered? I think we have said uh, we have covered. I Maybe I came uh, uh, off as someone who is against Oromo, my Oromo nationalists, but I'm not uh, against it. I, I want facts to, to ground our conversation. Uh, I, I, I want misinformation, disinformation to to be out of our uh, political system. So that is my only concern. I identify as a woman. So that's very important. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna...